Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me as always is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. Um, we have about the show you would expect um, for, any, <laughs> for any literary podcast uh, to have today, which is a discussion of George R. R. Martin and A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones, the TV show, and how it all kind of, um, I guess, how we're feeling about it, what we think about it. Um, hopefully, we're going to approach it from a more of a publishing angle, more of a writer angle, as opposed to, like, we're not going to, like, talk about plots or anything. Who we I think Jon Snow's right, yeah. mother is. Yeah, no, no, no. Just to be clear, we're not going to, like, do the kind of standard fan stuff, I don't think. Um, but we figured we'd talk about that because it's on everybody's minds right now. Um, but before we get to that, how about the basics, huh? Great. So uh, it's... Pro- oh boy, it's halfway through July. I just looked at the date and it's the 17th, which means um, we have had one of our special episodes go live already. That was our query show where we critique queries submitted by writers just like you. Our writing by reading is coming up this Thursday. Now, just a reminder, that is an episode where we take a work of contemporary or famous or some other distinguished mm-hmm. piece of fiction And we select a scene or a couple of scenes and we kind of break it down on a macro and micro craft level Mm -hmm. to kind of help you with your writing. So that goes live this Thursday, July 20th. And we would like to announce that the book that we are doing is The Mothers by Britt Bennett. Yeah, no, I'm really, really excited about it. I know I really enjoyed reading that book. I think that you did too. I did. Um, I enjoyed it very much. And I think there's a lot to be said about Uh, Bennett as a writer in a lot of ways, but specifically this episode, we're going to be talking about narrative framing um, as it surrounds her story. And I think we're going to have some pretty uh, specific and interesting, I hope, uh, things to say about it. So definitely tune in um, because we'll be we'll be talking about the mothers, which by, you know, ask anyone who's read that one. They they all seem to love it. I've always wanted to watch (laughs) you do an entire 45 minutes about motherhood. Well, it is my area of expertise. <laughs> <laughs> so that, the the writing by reading is available to our $10 a month Patreon supporters. Also available to our $10 a month Patreon supporters is our first pages episode, which is just like our query episode, but we critique first pages instead mm-hmm. of queries. Um, so that goes live July 27th, which is also a Thursday. As a reminder, you can send us suggestions, comments, or your first pages and queries, which will be kept confidential, of course, no names. Um, you can send those to us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Cool. Um, so before we before we dig into all things uh, George, or I guess as we've all been calling him, write your damn book, George. <laughs> um, I've named my cat that. Yeah, I know. Um, we should talk about first uh, The Millions, uh, the book site everybody loves, has published what I really find to be one of the more useful um, little posts of any given year, which is the uh, the literary preview for the second half of 2017. Here's um, what it's called. The Millions Most Anticipated, <laughs> the Great Second Half 2017 Book Preview. Yeah, so um, I just figure, as since everybody has kind of seen this in our little book circles, we should just kind of go through and, you know, pick a few out that maybe we're excited about, ones that caught your eye. I mean, anything about um, the second half of 2017 that has got you excited or anything else. Do you know what I love about these lists? Yeah. Is that these lists make me feel inferior in the best way. (laughs) What's that? (laughs) Because they just, you know, it's this aggregate collection of six months worth of 
um, what the millions has deemed as noteworthy debuts. So it's the teeny tiniest percentage of books that are still coming out this year. Mm -hmm. And they talk about it. They talk about the author's previous books. They talk about what this book is about. They give their reviews. And it's all just, like, exciting. It's like, um, do you know what it reminds me of, Eric? What? Uh, it reminds me of when in Minnesota the new food list for the Minnesota State Fair <laughs> comes out. <laughs> where you just where you just like print it out and like circle all the cheese curd yeah, stands okay. with like a map and shit. <laughs> yeah. So remember, remember Eric last year yeah. when we were relatively new friends and you had never been to a state fair before. Right. And I'm from a civilized part of the country, we don't have correct. Those there. And the the list came out, and instead of letting you like get to it in your own time, I sent you play by play tweets of all of the cheese items yeah, on the was, list. That was alarming. Um, uh, <laughs> you were into it though. I mean, like it's well, yeah, it's, it's a list of cheese items. I mean, what am I going <laughs> to do? Not be into it? It's it's yeah, it's really fun because it goes here are all these delicious things that you can have yeah. in three months. Yeah. Um, which is exactly what this does. Um, I also love these lists because it reminds me that short fiction exists and that I love it. Yeah, that's a good which point. Is, which is something that like I, I never, when I'm like reading for fun, I'm never like, hmm, I'm going to read a selection of short stories by an author. Well, and I think, um, you know, not only does that it exists and it's worth loving, but that it can be an event, right? Like the thing with looking at a list like this is that it just it feels exciting, you know. It feels like um, you know finding out what movies are coming out or something. You know, it's like it feels very like I don't know the feeling you get when you see like a trailer for something that you're really excited about. Like and to see like you're saying short fiction included on that list really I think breathes some energy um, into a genre that doesn't always get it from uh, public you know review outlets. Yeah. Why do you why do you like these lists? Well, so I mean, I like it just because it's got a lot. It's got a lot of names I really like on it. I mean, the one that um, you Jennifer know, Egan is that your most favorite one that's coming up? Yeah, no, that one. That one's good. Um, there's a new. Um, there's a new Celeste Ung uh, coming out that Ooh. you know, and she's one. I didn't. I didn't actually read her her first book, but I have been really like. You know how there's like books where you're like about to read it all the time, where you like don't quite, you haven't quite bought it yet, and you like, feel like you yeah, love it, but you yeah, haven't exactly, done it exactly. yet. Well, so like she's someone I've been like definitely like trying to read, and I'm excited for this one. Uh, her book is called Little Fires Everywhere, so I'm excited to pick that one up. Um, there's a new Garth Risk Halberg novel coming out this year, which, or I guess it's like a um, some reissue from something he did a few years ago, but um, he wrote City on Fire, mm. which is a book that. I mean, it's huge. It's like 700-something pages long, but um, and I love those kinds of giant books. But you love doorstoppers. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, I, I really – I found City on Fire to be really great. Um, it was the book that I remember texting you about becoming a welder. It was that book. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I'm excited about that. I mean, you've got Louise Erdrich on this, on this list. Um, you've got uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates on this list, you know, as kind of one of the rare uh, nonfiction entries here. Um, I think that book um, he's writing about, you know, the Obama years, and I'm sure that will be. Is that too soon? Uh, I don't know. I don't think so from him. Nah. I, th- I think from a lot of people it would be. Um, I think that, you know, so much of it, is, it sounds like it's firsthand material. Like he got to really go to the Oval Office and, like, you know, there's an interview with Obama in the um, in the book and stuff. And I don't know, like having read him over the last couple of years, I, I am, I'm ready to hear from him, you know. I mean, it, maybe it's. Maybe it's kind of too soon, but 
um, it sure feels like time is moving fast on such things. Yeah. That feels a really long time ago. <laughs> the but Obama it also years, feels so. too soon. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. But so I am going to go on the record and say I do not believe that it is too soon. I think it's the right time. And I, as much as um, Coates is worthy of critique in certain spots, um, I am very excited about um this book so but what about you what do you got i am really excited about the dark dark Mm -hmm. so two darks um and that is by samantha hunt who um is a novelist but this is her first collection of short fiction and it feels like very um like very horry and very bizarre and it's got like a you know, there's a killer robot in one of them. There's a woman that turns into a deer. There's de- a dead dog that comes back to life. But it's also about suburban loneliness um, and anxiety. I would read anything about suburban loneliness and anxiety. I know. That's like my favorite. <laughs> well, we can share this one. Um yeah, so that's that's when I'm really excited about. Um, I'm also the one that I was like salivating when I read about yeah. it was Her Body and Other Parties, mm-hmm. which I think is just such a great title. It's a good title. Um, and it's by Carmen Maria Machado, who is an essayist and has been in, you know, The New Yorker. Um, and this book, it's it's a debut novel. Um, and it's and it's like creepy and it's about like bodily autonomy and sexuality and all of like the dark creepy things that women are but like aren't often allowed to be in public spaces Mm -hmm. um and so i'm really excited about that one um just looking here um alice mcdermott has another novel coming out i really enjoy her um let's see here um there's a there was a debut that i was really excited about from someone i'd never heard of but feel like i should have um uh, Zinzi Clemens has written a book called What We Lose, um, and this one looks like that'll be one that I pick up right away. I would also um, like to give an honorable mention to a book that's coming out this month, actually, um, called Made for Love by mm-hmm. Alyssa Nutting. This is <laughs> so you guys. This is the first one on this list. It's got a hell of a description <laughs> because because it's organized by date, um, and so I'm just I'm I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm just going to read you the description that the Millions gives. Yeah. A retiree has sold his station wagon to buy a lifelike sex doll. His daughters come home after running out on her paranoid tech billionaire husband, and another man's been sexually assaulted by a dolphin. Just so you know that you're getting what you're getting into, all of this happened in the first 60 pages of Nutting's new novel, a darkly comic exploration of familial and romantic love and how technology warps both. So it's like a really like <laughs> absurdly sexy Black, Black Mirror episode. Yeah, um, good. Which I, I definitely do want to read that just because it's weird. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the cover is like super technicolor and kind of pulpy. And yeah, so I'm excited about that one. One thing, I mean, one thing that I am excited about is there's only one, there's only one book on this list that has girl in the title. Really? <laughs> um, that seems like, I know, it seems that low. Seems it low. seems low. Um, but so we maybe we're moving past that trend into, um, actually, I'll tell you what the new title trend is. It's having like. Um, those interrogative words, or I guess in that form, it's like, a, you know, they're, they kind of work as a pronoun. And like, well, the what, you know, the what belongs to you, or for instance, or like on this list, you've got, let's see, let me find it. Um, who Who is right, what we lose, you know, that's gonna, that's the new title thing, I think, is like getting some sort of like open-ended pronoun interrogative thing. Um, mm. <laughs> that's, 
So uh, the burning girl, just in case you're yeah. burning oh, to was, know, yeah, yeah, that's the, the one girl. with girl on it. As long it. as she's still on fire, because that's the other thing. Is, <laughs> well, is... she's burning, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there yeah. honorable mention for the for the girl category. Um, there is a book coming out, the red haired woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, good. So you know, red hair. You've got kind of. I think a there's also. Da- I think there's also daughters in this. There this are list. a lot of daughters. <laughs> yep. There's also a book called Home Fire. Okay. So, you, you know, so like people are going halves. Just fire and females. Like if you get that <laughs> in your book title, you're you're going to make it onto some lists. You're um, doing just fine. There are a couple of instances of women being named. Mm. So like after Kathy Acker, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, those are <laughs> those are some examples. Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, anyway. Um, so anyway, I think there's plenty to. Look at there's plenty to buy this this fall and winter, I guess. And Definitely keep us posted if you've purchased or read or, you know, enjoyed or hated any of the books that are on this list because um, Eric and I are uh, – because he's disappointed in me that I don't do football or anything like that. We're running an unofficial <laughs> pool between the two of us oh. as to what will be the most buzzworthy, um, and I want to win. What do you think is going to be the most buzzworthy? I don't know. I'm keeping my predictions to myself until we present them to one another. I'll help you. It's going to be what we lose. Um, You're always right. (laughs) Well, we don't know. We don't know if I'm right yet. No, but we know Um, you're always right. um, Well, we'll we'll see. But um, should we should we talk about our our good friend, our large son, (laughs) (laughs) our friend of the podcast, George R R Martin? Wow. wow, that was quite the that was quite the buildup. He deserves um, a buildup. You know what? You know what? He does deserve a buildup. He's That's been giving be, himself a buildup anyway. I'm about anyway. to get very, very pro George over the next however long we talk about this because I feel that George gets unfairly maligned in a lot of ways. But before we start talking about kind of him and all his personal, um, you know, his like journey to having now created um, this Game of Thrones. Phenomenon, and I think it's. I think that even that is probably too light of a word, you know, considering um, the impact that he seems to have had in popular culture at this point. Um, I, I just think that it's worth asking, you know, at this stage where everybody seems to be watching this show, everybody's read these books, everybody, even if they, if you, if you haven't watched the show, it's like notable to the point to the point that you're like tweeting about how you're not watching Game of Thrones, and you like, still know what the red wedding yeah, is. Your entire and... cultural. <laughs> All of your cultural reference points sort of hinge on this sun that is the George R. R. Martin universe at this point. <laughs> and so I think that it's worth um, – and again, like, like we said at the top, um, I don't want to dig into all the plot. I don't want to like do fan theories. I don't want to make predictions. Like that's kind of stuff that kind of bores me. Like I don't care. But um, what I do want to do is ask you, Laura, why does anybody give a shit about this series? Why – why has it had the impact it's had? Why is this not just another fantasy series that's come and gone? What makes A Song of Ice and Fire and then by extension this Game of Thrones television show, what to you, when you just like the first thing that comes to your mind, why has this had the success that it's had? Mm. Well, I, I think there are a lot of things. And, you know, this book appeals to a lot of people in a lot of different ways. But I think kind of the big thing to latch on to is that George, and we're going to keep calling him George uh, throughout this podcast because he's a friend. Mm. He's a friend to us in the podcast. Um, it's because George has 
done something that really hasn't been done since Tolkien, which is like write high fantasy where there is this huge interlocking world that just Mm -hmm. spans for forever. And I know a lot of people are going to be hitting their like mute button and going, but Robert Jordan, but all of these other people. Um, But I want to say, hold on one second. I think George is fundamentally different from people like Robert Jordan because he has so many characters and he has so many storylines and they all kind of work on their own, but then they work together and it's, and it's this really, really, really intense world. It's kind of world first character second, I think. Hmm. Um, I I see. I might, I see what you're saying. Yeah. That it's world first, but we'll we'll finish your point. Okay. Well, I was going to say what that does is in the characters, he, he gives so many of them in POV perspectives Mm -hmm. so that we have so many different entry points to the different areas of this. So it never feels completely unwieldy. Although every once in a while, you know, somebody might go like, who the hell (laughs) is Beric Dondarrion? You know, I love that stuff though. (laughs) But, but it's never 100% unwieldy. It's not long just for the sake of being long. It's long because, For George, everybody matters. And when everybody matters in this book and when all of the world matters in this book, what it does is it gives the reader a sense that you can be rooting for somebody and be excited for something or some like and and something can happen at any moment. It gives you all these entry points to really like latch onto and love and interact with the content in a lot of ways. Yeah. So I think I think that that all is is valid. I mean, for me. It's the rooting. So I, I, I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about this, and I, a lot of people have. Like, the points I'm going to make aren't particularly novel or, you know, unique, but, like, um, people do really seem to pick sides in this show. Like, I know that there's a bunch of people that I watch Game of Thrones with, um, and we all have, like, a favorite character who we are, like you're saying, quote-unquote, cheering for, you know? And the fact to me that... He's created this space where people can feel like there's all these kind of level characters all competing on mm-hmm. this even playing field. To me, that is a remarkable achievement. And it comes from this idea, I think, that the book doesn't really have a main character. You know, it doesn't really have a a what you would call like a traditional center to it. Yeah. You know, like to me, like when I think of the absolute innovation that George R. R. Martin put in this series. It is the fact that he took the very, like, concept of a protagonist. Hold on, guys. Big spoiler <laughs> alert for the rest of this episode. If you haven't read or haven't watched and plan to, turn this off right oh, now. But <laughs> this book, okay, so the, the spoiler I'm about to give happened in 1996. So <laughs> like, It's not too it, soon, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, no, I'm not too concerned about it. But, like, the point is that you kind of spend the first book you know he gets these these novels you know uh, rotate around characters and you've got these kind of competing storylines all in this world and that's where you get this idea of world first right um, but you did feel like at the beginning of Game of Thrones before you realized that this was not a novel in a series that um, was going to adhere to traditional plot structures or follow the archetypal hero's journey um, or kind of deal with um, what I call, I mean, you were kind of batting around what the term for this is earlier, but like plot armor, which I I kind of take to mean as um, like the plot of a story, like 
providing evidence that no, no, this person isn't going to get killed or this person. Like it's the feeling you get when your main character is in a lot of trouble halfway through the book and simply seeing that there's like half a book left lets you know that the character isn't going to die. Yeah. You know, like that kind of thing. Um, so all these concepts that kind of go into traditional storytelling, George has decided to do away with, you know, and he killed, you know, at the end of this first book in his series, he takes his, who I feel, and people will certainly argue with this, um, his would-be protagonist, Ned Stark. The right? hero to go on the, the hero's journey. Yeah the, hero, yeah. yeah, the hero that he sort of designates, you know, as his hero's journey guy and just kills him and kills him. And to me, that moment was so shocking and innovative in its own way, but it created this vacuum, right, where suddenly there was no main character. And it allows for everyone in their own way to be the main character, you know? And because of that, you can cheer for any number of people in this universe and feel as though you have a shot at winning, you know? there's <laughs> Because there's never a sense, there's never a sense that, oh, man, um, if, you know, I like this character, but clearly the way the story is shaping up, they don't have a shot. Yeah. Like that is – and, you know, people who have watched the television show through to where we are now, like maybe you can kind of, you know, start to point to certain people you feel are doing well. But you go a long – you go years with this series thinking anyone I am, I have decided to like be attached to has a chance, you know? It increases the tension on yeah. – you know, even, even beyond your favorites. What yeah. it does is it increases the tension on the page. There's never a moment when you think, oh, well, I know that this actor – was signed on for an entire season, <laughs> so then it'll you know it'll be fine. No, 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 no. There's there's so much there. There's just there's so much tension because basically what happened is Ned Stark was the Franz Ferdinand of <laughs> of Westeros, and then it, yeah. and then when he was gone, everybody else became big fighting powers and yeah. joined up and yeah. and kind of are fighting this huge world war. Um, one of the things I also really like about Game of Thrones mm-hmm. um, in terms of like how it's innovative and why it's really popular is because, you know, it's it's really easy with, you know, the past several years being the TV show. It's really easy to think like this is a new thing. Mm-hmm. George R. R. Martin started writing the series in 1991. Yeah. The first book came out in 1996. I think okay? a lot of people I don't I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize how old it is. Yeah. It's old as hell. Yeah. It's, yeah. you know, it's from the 90s. Like, this show is new and, like, people's interest in it certainly. But like you're saying, yeah, it's this is a book written for people a lot older than us even. Yeah. But one thing to remember with that is when it was first formulated and when it was first written, it was really, 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 truly innovative as to, you know, even just the world is. Like, forgetting Ned Stark, forgetting what happens yeah. in the books. Yeah. The fact that this is a grimdark book. Mm-hmm. In, you know, right as Grimdark was emerging is a huge deal. So for those of you who don't know what Grimdark is, um, basically it's a it's a style of of fiction, most commonly fantasy, where it's characterized by a lot of like really gross grittiness, like reflecting Mm -hmm. the real world. You know, it's a little bit more violent. It's a little bit more sexual. It's a little bit more. representative of what people are actually like Um, and included in that is that there is a lot of like moral gray area you know you don't have you know an entire book of Ned Starks you know you have people that have their own motivations you have people everybody's complicated everybody's complicated and like the authors write try to write complicated characters in every book but I agree with you like he's really achieved something in his characterization and his um 
just the way he set up this universe where everybody truly does feel totally complex in a lot of different ways. Yeah, even, you know, even Cersei, who is, mm-hmm. you know, the evil bitch queen, right? She's who like, I cheer for, by the way. Really? Yeah, I love Cersei. Why am I she's not my, surprised she's by that? She's my favorite character. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, you, you, you take this character who would so easily be the villain in any other book. And if you give her, you know, a POV chapters where she has empathy, mm-hmm. then you totally forgive her for sleeping with her brother and, you know, yeah. putting putting her evil little kid on the throne. And that I'd sort like of thing. it on the record that I have forgiven her for sleeping with her brother. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Why not? It's Game of Thrones. I can cheer for whatever the hell I want. I choose to cheer for that. That's true. And there's literally not a better choice. Like everybody always yeah, no thinks that like Danny or like Jon Snow is the best. But the fact of the matter is, is they're dumb and make stupid decisions too. Well, so Danny. And they kill a lot of people. <laughs> Danny is an interesting point in this book. And I was looking today, I was kind of looking, okay, well, when the first book came out in 96, right? The It's now 2017. And the last book, um, A Dance with Dragons was published in 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been, what, 21 years since mm-hmm. this series debuted? And I remember getting through the first book and being like, okay, Danny's coming over to Westeros. She's going to go over there and she's coming over and it's going to all get wrapped up by like the end of book one, start of book two. Like oh, she's you sweet start- <laughs> summer child. We are 21 years later after that <laughs> first book. And she in the books, she still hasn't come over yet. You know what I mean? Like he really... Um, he just takes – this is the thing I think with George, and we talked about this a little bit on our special episode where we talked about the Red Wedding, right? Mm-hmm. Um, George has such an amazing sense to me of reader expectation. He knows what a reader thinks as they read a story. He knows what they're expecting. He knows what they are ready for. He knows what they've been conditioned to believe as they read. And he takes that and he plays with it so well. Sometimes he gratifies you. Sometimes he gives you that moment you're looking for. And sometimes he takes his ostensible main character and strands her on a different continent for 20 years. You know what I mean? Like, and I just think it's so great because it creates this environment where anything can happen. And your favorite character, yeah, you feel empowered that you can cheer for anyone because there's this kind of like protagonist vacuum. But that also means that anyone could be, could get killed at any moment, and he could spend thousands and hundreds of pages, um, you know, invested in any character, and then just decide to kill him off, you know. And it's, <laughs> I think it's an ama- I think it's amazing because it truly feels like it's happening in real time as you read it, as opposed to, um, as so often the case with even really great stories that you can kind of see. It, it's tough to see certain things coming in this book on a very fundamental level. Yeah. I think I think the writing and, you know, we touched on this a tiny bit in our writing by reading episode for last month. Yeah. Um, I, and I think the writing really, really, really helps with that. Mm-hmm. So if, if for a little bit of background, um, George, before he wrote this book series, was a writer for television. Right. Like he, he wrote for yeah. the X-Files. Yeah. Right. And so he was used to very. Um, regimented time and plot constraints, mm-hmm. right? And so when it came time for him to write his own book, yeah. he said to himself, self, I want to write the biggest, fattest, most sprawling, exciting, unfilmable project ever. Unfilmable. Unfilmable. Yeah. Because it, it spread too far, right? And he was, and so the big, the big hallmark of being a writer for television is cutting. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to, he wanted to make everything important. But 
And so the reason that thousands and thousands and thousands of pages are something that you know, the layperson gets through, not necessarily a, you know, a huge high fantasy head, um, is because he's taking those lessons from TV writing, but is putting them into like 5,000 pages of published text. Yeah. So what it means is that there's no fat, you know, there are characters that don't matter to the overall arc of the story. But like I said before, He's not just telling the overall arc of the story. He's telling every individual character's story. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, very oftentimes, you know, a chapter or a set of chapters can be read as, you know, a, a story all by itself. Yeah, um, even even if it's, you know, those throwaway characters at the beginning of every book that are just there to kind of like pull you in, like those characters still have an important arc. There's, I was about to say there's just arcs all over the place. So right? many arcs. Yeah. Yep, there's just so, so, so many arcs. And so by the time a character dies, it's utterly, you know, confusing and and shocking. But also if you take only that character's arc, it makes complete sense. And so you don't know, like, again, going back to that no main character, that's what throws us is because we're given enough of our, like, expectation for storytelling arcs that will keep us pushed but he messes with them and puts them in such order yeah. and kind of weaves them all together so that when an arc concludes, we didn't see it coming. Yeah. I mean, I think um, his ability to just remove your ability to guess, you know, like keep you on your toes, you know, like you say, like preventing you from seeing what's coming is to me the most the most amazing part of his writing. Um, and... I guess, like, you know, thinking about your point about it being world first, which as I, like, think about it, I, I think that I probably agree with. Um, that's where you get all this, like, ancillary content, right? Like, I think there's, like, a Game of Thrones atlas out there that you can buy of, like, Westeros and stuff. I know there's a cookbook that oh, you yeah. can buy. Like, people want to, like, I don't know if they want to live in this world. I don't know why you would want to live in oh, Westeros. Oh, nobody it's like wants a disastrous, to live in it. But, like, it's like a hellscape. I would never want to go there. <laughs> but, um <laughs> but lots of people want to inhabit it at least for a while, you know, and there's all this stuff that isn't related to the story at all that just let you participate in it for a little bit. And so it's no wonder then that um, a production company and a television company like HBO would jump at the chance at signing, you know, a series like this up. And they did so in 2007. Um, HBO agreed to terms with George to publish his series on TV. And they, um, you know, the first episode aired in 2011. And I want to talk about kind of not just the TV show because that's, I mean, how many how many Game of Thrones podcasts do you think there are? There's like hundreds, right? There are so <laughs> and TV shows like about, in YouTube like channels about the show. Yeah, about, like, so like oh, I don't want to talk. I don't want to. One was a was a was a white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like I don't want to. I don't want to do any of that. But um, I do want to talk about George versus the show a little bit because I find that dichotomy really interesting, and I think a lot of people um, are on team not George. well they they want more blood and more boobs faster well so that's the faster is the interesting part right and so george is as anyone knows um who has followed us has followed any amount of you know genre fiction popular uh writing um george is a little bit slower right and he's getting he's getting slower with his writing this first book so just as a 
um, just a little timeline here. His first book came out in, um, or Game of Thrones came out in 1996. Um, Clash of Kings, his second book, came out in 1998. So we're right on pace here, right? Like you sign up a series, you want a book every year and a half or so. Um, 2000 is when um, a, what was the third one called? A Storm of Swords. Um, and then you started hitting the gaps. And this is when George um, got into some trouble. Um, and it took him five more years to get to A Feast for Crows, which everyone hated, by the way, and was supposed to be one giant book, but it ended up being so big that it created that next book that happened in parallel um, that he released in 2011, six years after that, called The Dance with Dragons. You know what? I don't think it's fair that everybody hated A Feast for Crows. Why? Because he was going to skip over five years, and then everybody didn't want him to do that. And so he was like, well, I guess I'll write this next book. <laughs> okay. And then everybody hated it. Okay, so real real quick, let's just like give like the barest amount of background information here. Um, so A Feast for Crows is the fourth book in this series. Um, it features... Half the cast. Well, it features half the cast, but it features the cast that no one's heard of, right? <laughs> That's like true. it features like all your favorite Game of Thrones characters are not really in A Feast for Crows. John and Danny are not in this right. One, exactly. Yeah. It's it doesn't. It's like all the like side characters because there's this moment after the third book where the world has just kind of exploded, right? And there's so much going on that he decided to make it two books instead of one, and this is the half of that parallel timeline where. Most of, the, most of the characters you haven't really heard of or paid much attention to up to this point. And so people didn't really like it. Um, he was also trying to solve um, – and this is one other thing I really love about um, not just the series but just George R. R. Martin lore is he was trying to solve a problem that took him I think like six years to solve. Right? Like that's why there was such a difference but, you know, a length and timeline here is he was trying to solve something that he calls the Miranese knot. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but the point is, like, most people know what that is. Like, I feel like I could say that, and, like, a lot of our listeners would be like, oh, yeah, the mirror is not. And it's because even his problems in his writing process are famous at this point. <laughs> you know, like, it was basically the problem is that he couldn't figure out how to get all his characters to converge on Danny over on the other continent, right? Like, he couldn't figure out how to get everybody over to where he needed them to go so that they could then come back. And, um, but even, like, even these problems, they just feel so real, you know, like they feel so just like you can just you're they're so tangible. And it's like, oh, yeah, no, that that's absolutely a problem. And I, you know, we need them to figure it out. Um, but anyway, so everyone hated this book or they didn't hate it, but they they disliked it. And then there's like, of course, the counter movement where, well, actually, actually, A Feast for Crows is the best is the best of the books. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely the shortest. Yeah, it's, no, it's the shortest. Um, but. Yeah, I don't know. Like, so George George is pokey is the point of all this stuff. And he's taking a while. And obviously, he was. we're all waiting for him to deliver book number six, which is going to be called uh, The Winds of Winter, right? And we're just hoping he's going to turn this in. And the problem, and this is where George gets mad and everyone gets mad at George, is everyone thinks George is going to die before finishing this book. Because he's 60 right? years old, which is not that 60 old. Is an old. 60 is an old, but George is a... Not necessarily the most healthy looking dude, right? Um, so people are mad at George and they are openly speculating at him that he is gonna die before <laughs> finishing Game of Thrones. And one thing about him is that he um he hates fan fiction, right? Absolutely he's, hates it. He's against fan fiction, um, and he's against the very concept of anyone finishing his novels for him. 
And so there really is a certain amount of pressure. Like if basically if he doesn't finish these books, no one is going to finish them. And that obviously has people a little bit uh, nervous, I guess, and they tell him so in the typical internet way of not being very polite about it, right? Um, and <laughs> he's he's particularly rankled by these calls, and he at one point has even, um, you know, said in it, you know, given the you know the middle finger and said "fuck you" um, to anyone who would question you know, his ability to finish his books, right? And I, you know, it, in a lot of ways, I empathize with him, especially because um, he is... He's devoted 26 years of his well, life yeah, to this. Well, yeah, and he's yeah. created... I mean, he, it's it's so funny because he's created something that people like so much, and this is what that I want to touch him. on, that they're now mad at him. They view him as an antagonist to the very content that he's created. And so he gets frustrated at this because he was, um, you know, he was friends with, with Robert Jordan, who was... Um, another high fantasy writer wrote A Wheel of Time. Yep. Is that the name of the series? And Robert Jordan did die during the right the, before the series was completed. Yep. And everyone, um, really, I think, pretty you know, I don't know. I find it pretty distasteful. But they're all like in you know the postmortem, very mad at Robert Jordan for having died. <laughs> and they brought somebody else in to write those books. Yeah, no, and someone else came in and finished them. And George has been very clear that he does not want that to happen. And also he thinks that all of you people shouting at him to finish his books before he dies are very tasteless. And I would tend to agree despite the jokes that uh, we tend to get off. But um, Do you know what I think I just figured out? Hmm. I just figured out who the real villain of the Game of Thrones <laughs> show and A Song of Ice and Fire is. Who is it? It's not Ramsey Bolton. It's not Cersei. It's, it. yeah, it's it's George. <laughs> He's the villain. He's definitely the character everybody hates most, right? <laughs> like, there's all, all the bad, all the bad characters in the book and the show itself. People are like, no, no, no. He's just, he's just sticking up for his family. He's just trying to live up to his legacy. No, 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 no. Everybody just is mad at George R. R. Martin. He really is the antagonist to his own series. And what's really interesting about that is that the only reason that people are so, so, so on him to finish his goddamn books is because he sold the rights for the books to HBO, Mm -hmm. right? And so now, very famously, the HBO series has surpassed – what has been written and published. That's okay? what's fascinating. So, here's, so yeah. here's the thing. He's against fan fiction. He's against anybody finishing his own books for him. But he put himself in the position where now people who he licensed the rights of this book to are ahead of him. They get to tell the story before him. Well, so <laughs> you know what else he is what? in addition to all those things? He's mad online. He is mad online. <laughs> I want to look at – so he was um, – this was a, this is from a 2010 post uh, before we get into the many complexities of him having handed over his story to people with a much faster timeline than he has. Um, I want to read just because it amused me so much um, today. This is from his his like – I guess his live journal blog. I can't believe that George R. R. Martin has one of these. He's keeping but, <laughs> the platform alive. Yeah, he's, he, he really is. Um, but anyway, he was mad. He was fighting with the internet about fan fiction and he honestly quoted a passage here that to me um, sounds basically like a drill tweet to me. <laughs> um, but here we go. This is him addressing his internet commenters on his blog, right? And this is all in parentheses. But a word of warning. I'm not nearly as nice a person as Diana is who has been like maintaining his blog, I guess. No, no, no. Diana from – is Diana Gabaldon. 
hmm. from the Outlander series. Oh. Because she famously also does not like fan fiction. Oh, okay. Yeah. Good. So another Excellent. New York Times bestselling author who has a million books and a very, very wide, sprawling series. Oh, well, my, apolog- my apologies to Diana. I didn't realize. Um, and this not a blog is screened and monitored by my assistant. Diana was willing to let everything go in her comment section. I'm not. So my roof, my rules. Disagree if you want. Disagree vigorously. Argue your points. But no name calling, no abuse, no threats. And you can spare me the, I have never read any of your books, but, but now I'm not going to. And I'm going to tell all my friends not to read your books either, posts as well. <laughs> Fine. You just want to read books by authors who support fan fiction, not – go ahead. Do that. There are a number of very fine writers in that group. We don't need to hear about it here. No derailing the discussion. Let's talk about the issue, not tone. I'd love to see some rational discourse here. Thanks. And this is all in parentheses. <laughs> yeah. Now I understand why well, he's written love- 4,400 pages. <laughs> I just love, for whatever reason, I know that was that's fairly inconsequential, but I love that George R. R. Martin is getting mad on the internet at his his haters. Well, don't um, you think? Me. Don't you think that people bothering him all the time to to write has given in, given him some like completion anxiety? Well, he has said so. Yeah, he said so. So, like, yeah, with the Winds of Winter, which he's working on now, he's talked about how well he started falling behind. Right, and that game made him a little bit nervous. He had that, a Halloween deadline, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. he had a Christmas deadline, right. and now who knows and what then, his deadline but is. But then he described something interesting, and then he said, the fact that I had missed my deadlines made me write even slower. Mm. You know, he's like, oh, I was started to feel, he, like you're saying, completion anxiety, right? Like he was really, like he sort of entered this little spiral, right, that who knows if he's even out of at this point. But um He's I, he's feeling he's kind of feeling it, you know. He's feeling that writerly pressure, and the whole world is staring at him. I mean, yeah. imagine trying to like write one of these novels with. Do you know but, what I think? Do yeah. you know what I think? Yeah. I think that now that Game of Thrones is in its last two seasons, mm-hmm. and that they are dropping all these like hot truth bombs yeah. on everybody. Yeah. Here's what I think. Yeah. I think George has said multiple times that he is, you know, a little dismayed. Because they're getting to plot points like Hodor, you know, right, right before he does. Let's, but here's, but yeah. here's what he said. He has said that there are a lot of big events mm-hmm. that are going to play out very, very differently in the books yeah. because you yeah. know it's kind of the butterfly effect, right? Like right. in the show, they just kind of like kill off one character for whatever reason and then that character was still alive in the books and that character Mm -hmm. becomes very big in the books later on Mm -hmm. and kind of those incremental changes become very, very, very big. And so apparently there's at least one huge plot point that is that is not like this kind of like twist that isn't going that's going to be in the books that's not going to be in the show simply because well well, simply because (laughs) the show has already killed that character off and um so here's what i think i think that george is waiting (laughs) i do do? i do because i think i think that he wants to get, get his book back like honestly, I think he wants his plot points back, and I think that once everybody are like, yeah. once the show is completed, yeah. and everybody is kind of like have like calmed their tits about the show, yeah. then they can go. But how is the book going to be different? Yeah. Rather than he wants you know, his buzz back. He wants his yeah. buzz back, and I think I think that that's actually kind of admirable because it allow people to engage with the show versus the text in entirely different ways. So, so let's let's talk because I I think that. Um, I think that's a really interesting theory. I haven't even thought about that. But um, let's talk for a second about the show being taken or his – not the show but his story mm-hmm. being taken from him. Um, so when he signed up to 
um, do you know to, when they when he signed on with HBO, he met with the creators of the show, right? And who he, had never done a show before, right? And they, and to be to be clear, I really love the show. I think they're doing a great job with it. This is not like I don't mean to paint them as antagonists here, but they asked for all of his. They asked for his story, right? And they asked for his notes, and he gave them to him. Like the the creators of the television show know how George's series is going to end. Yep. Right. They have this, and they've obviously television works on faster deadlines often than fiction writers do, and they're past it. And just like that that Hodor moment that you talk about, I I want to stop there. For I want to like pause on that one for a second because to me that's where I feel the most empathy for George R. R. Mm. Martin, right? Because I don't know if anyone, I mean, we won't spoil it, but there's... This is a character um, he named in 1991. So this is, yeah, exactly. This is something he created, this character named Hodor, right, in 1991. And like the whole point behind this character and his name and all this stuff, it's, it's something he's been planning out for... Decades. It's now, something he's been building right? towards. He's been like this has been the defi- like to him, and you hear him talk about it is one of the defining things of his like story. Like this payoff moment. Like when you th- when you're if you, you, a lot of the listeners to the show are writers, like you all have those payoff moments, right? That you're building toward. You're like, man, as soon as I show the reader that, that's going to be incredible. It's going to be a rush to write. It's going to be a rush for them to read. That's the thing that's going to make me me. You know, and the show has revealed that moment. They did it last season. It happened. And it was beautiful, right? That's it one was of the that was beautiful. one of the great that was one of the great episodes of television I've ever watched. I saw people See? wearing shirts that said "Hold the door" the <laughs> next week. Yeah, I mean it's an amazing it's an amazing moment of storytelling and, ama- and an amazing moment of television. But just imagine being the book writer who thought of that and handed it to them, and not. I mean, his thunder has been stolen on that. You know, like that moment will happen in the books in some way, and he is—he's again, like you're saying, he's made it very clear that it's going to happen slightly differently. Yeah. You know, like or like there's a certain amount of you know of that scene that's going to be different in the way he writes it as opposed to what the show made it. But to me, I really feel for him in that moment from a creative standpoint because it's like they—you know—he wasn't—he had this plan to stay ahead. Like you, he's been on the record. Like when he signed up for the show. He planned to finish the books before the series cut up to him. Like he was not expecting the um, to be the, overtaken the time. like this, yeah. and he was certainly not expecting to be overtaken at one of the moments he'd been planning on for at that point what twenty six years, twenty five <laughs> years, like God. most of his like a giant chunk of his life. You yeah, know? that's like this, that's almost this, half of his life. This creative invention, you know, like and so I do feel for him in that regard. Um, as you know. With the standard caveat that the entire world is in love with his show, and I think they're doing a good job with it, and I think he thinks they're doing a good job with it for the most part. Even though, I mean, I think his editor has has voiced some displeasure with certain things. But oh yeah, um, he he has. I, you know, I think I think his relationship with the show is a little bit more interesting than than the relationship with a lot of other writers because he wrote and writes for television yeah. you know yeah. he is he's just been announced to be one of the producers of Nettie Okorafor's Who Fears Death on HBO another HBO right? show by another the way so HBO. HBO is taking care of it oh yeah. yeah and and also like he wrote a lot of the early episodes yeah. and then and you know stopped because he started feeling the pressure about finishing the book because yeah. writing one an episode took him about yeah. three weeks and so I think he fundamentally you know from a rational level understands how different the show is going to be. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's hard when 
you know, you you see something and then you just like, oh, it, that Can you imagine just, watching oh. that? Can you imagine watching that moment if you're him <sighs> and like seeing the reaction to oh it? Oh my God. That must be, that must have been such a complicated moment. Yeah. Because on the one hand, you're, there's got to be some rush, right? That everyone looked at the twist or like the reveal, I guess, that you created and loved it. Like it went off exactly as well as you were hoping it would when you were 25 years younger. Potentially even better because millions yeah. of people watched it. And, it went exactly as you were hoped, but you weren't the one to deliver it, you know? And it's like, man, I, I just, on that regard, I, I really do, um, I get where he's frustrated. And so, and I get why amidst that, you know, that environment, he's mad that people are yelling at him all the time to finish his book, even if it's out of love, right? Because most people want him to finish it so they can read it. Yeah. But um, I guess, you know, here's an interesting question because this doesn't happen very much, right? Like where the television depiction like usually, you know, the book becomes a movie after the fact, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, there's like a book adaptation of a movie that's sort of, I mean, honestly, kind of kind of facile, you know, like it's just not kinda, just kind of very it's based just, off. It's of. just like a book transcript of the movie that you can then, you know, like it's not. But yeah. like we don't really often see it where an in progress, very popular thing. I, I mean, I don't know if we've ever seen it and I hope someone corrects me if I'm wrong, but um, we don't really ever see it where – a series in progress gets overtaken by its show and then the books keep going with us having already seen the conclusion of the show. And so my question to you, Laura, is are you less or more or the same amount of excited or enthusiastic about reading the next two George R. R. Martin books in this series? Because there's going to be two more supposedly, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it's and I guess that should come with a caveat because he has already expanded the series by one book. Um, and, but there's two more books in this series that will come out hopefully at all, (laughs) but it will take, it will take a long time, right? Are you more or less excited about reading those knowing that in broad strokes, you'll probably have already watched how it ends? So I started the, the GRM thing by watching the series, Mm -hmm. actually. I, I, yeah. Okay, so so that's different than me. I watched the series first. Um, simply because when, you know, I got an H, you know, got an HBO subscription and kind of like found the books myself, um, I was working as an agent and like seeing an 1100 page book was a lot scarier than seeing, you know, an episode on television. See, I love George because of the paperweight factor. I know, (laughs) I know you do. I know. And you actually lent me your hard copies. Um, and so I, I didn't actually read the books until I, um, subscribed to my local library and got them in yeah. audiobooks. Yeah. And so I, you know, and I had already been spoiled before that. You know, I already knew what the Red Wedding was and I knew when it was going to happen. And so, like, right. you know, my whole life is spoilers. Right. You know, I read enough where I can just look at something right. except for George's work um, right. where I can look at something and be like, I bet you this happens, right? And so my enjoyment of the books wasn't diminished at all by by knowing that all of this was happening. I actually found a lot of pleasure in the way that things were different yeah. um, because it was like it was like a little surprise. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think I'm going to be – you know what? I actually – now that I've talked myself through this, I think I'm going to be more excited to read the books because I think by the time that they come out, I'm going to be nostalgic for the experience yeah. of first – yeah. experiencing and first consuming this content. And I feel mm-hmm. like the very, very last book that he'll write will be 
fairly different than what the show has been doing. And I think that I'm going to miss, like I tell people all the time, man, I wish I could read that for the first time again, or I'm so jealous that you're watching this for the first time. Um, and I think that if I, if my theory is right and he's waiting and he's going slow kind of on purpose or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, I think that I'm going to be hungry for that when it happens. Yeah. What about you? Well, so one thing I always think about um, is when the show first debuted, you know, there was this argument, right, where like all there was like supposedly this giant, you know, movement of book people who were saying, you know, the book is better than the show will ever be. And then all the show people had to like step up and like do this whole thing where they like say, well, it doesn't matter if the books were, you know, they like made up this like whole like straw man about how like shouting at the people who had read the books. They first, had to you know? fight like West yeah, Side Story. Yeah, it was like this big dumb argument where everyone who had only consumed it on television had to like shout down the people who had read the books, and that was all. You know, both sides aren't wrong. You know, like it's two different mediums. It's you know, honestly, it sounds like you know as these things branch, perhaps even two slightly different stories. But yeah. um, I have this thought a lot about these books that, you know, this problem of um, simultaneous production, that the series is in progress and the television series is in progress, that's a very contemporary and fleeting problem. Mm -hmm. Eventually, both series will be done. And they'll just exist. The book series will be done. The television series will be done. And they will each get to exist in their own right, separate from each other. And in that environment, once that happens, to me – and this, maybe this is going to make some people mad. I think the books are going to be much more enduring than mm. the television show. And I like the television show. I watch it every week. Like I make a production out of it. I sit there right when it comes out on HBO and I drink a glass of wine and I watch it. I love it. But it's, a te- it's one more television show. And it's taking a, a really great story and putting this beautiful production, you know, you know, production value behind it and all this, you know, this great musical score and all these attractive actors and actresses and all this stuff. And they're making it, you know, look so cool with all these effects. But the genius of Game of Thrones, the genius of A Song of Ice and Fire, it's none of those things. Mm. The genius, and I still believe this, even as good a job as uh, Weiss and Benioff have done on this show, and I think they've done a remarkable job, the genius is George's. He's the one who created this stuff. He's the one who figured out how to play with the expectation of story and audience and character and setting and plot. He knew how to do all this stuff in a way no one's ever done before. And I think that once all is said and done and once we're done arguing about, you know, when's he going to finish this book and when's it going to re- exist in relation to this, you know, big, shiny, fancy show on the screen with the dragons, you know, I think those books are going to endure longer. And Plus, no one will remake them. Like, they'll probably remake Game of Thrones. <laughs> right. Like, to me, I just, um, I'm on, I think, I'm not on team anything because I don't think I preclude myself from either audience. But to me, like, in 20 years, the thing that people are going to want to return to, the ones who are really interested in the story and love, this, you know, love, like, people who like reading and shows, because there's plenty of people who would never, who don't want to read books, who just want to watch the show, right? But, like, the people who kind of view the mediums as equal and are equally interested in going, I think they're going to turn to the books mm. because I think that the books have a little more depth. I think they um, – all these things like – you know, it's one thing to show something really fancy and cool on screen. And it's another to 
describe it equally as vividly. And yeah. the description is more difficult. You know, it's like saying, I mean, honestly, it's like saying that a photograph of something is better than a written description of something because it, show it, because it shows it more clearly. You wouldn't argue that, you know what I mean? Because you would understand that it was different mediums in the act of describing, even if it's not showing you this with the same perfect detail, you know, what the object is. Um, it can be just as beautiful and just as affecting. Um, I don't know. To me, to me, the books are going to endure, and I'm really excited to, you know, like when I think about the ultimate Game of Thrones experience, to me it's going to be buying the $70 box set someday oh, of the yeah, books. Oh, yeah, I'm you know, so going to do gonna that. I'm going to buy the whole hardcover set with the same, because I'm like a big stickler for like same editions and series. <laughs> you know, like I want like all of the books to kind of look the same, you know. So I'll buy, um, I can't wait to drop that money on the books and have them on a shelf and like return to them. Like to me, that's what's going to last. And I think that um, the show is going to be one more really pretty eye candy filled show. Mm. Well, that's that's hopeful for George. I like that. Yeah. But no, I, I'm on Team George, and yeah. I want him to write his damn book, yeah. George. But <laughs> All that is to say, George, <laughs> publish your goddamn book. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think we should go to the pub yeah, tip, don't sure. you? Yeah. It's in keeping with, um, with our good friend George, uh, which is write the damn book. You write know? the goddamn book. Like, get it down on paper, you know, write it, whatever it takes, just get it done because, and I know that sounds cheeky with all the things we've just talked about, but honestly, and you know, there's all that advice where like Hemingway, you know, said, oh, well, write shitty first drafts and stuff. But like, he said so, it better than that. He said, write drunk, edit sober, but that's, you know, close. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Um, I'm going to look that up later to fact check you. We'll see. <laughs> we'll, we'll see if he said that, Laura. Um, but <laughs> it's easier to work and toy and make adjustments with something that exists. And so I guess my right tip today is do the work of drafting, but treat it as what it is, which is a draft. And that it's oftentimes as a writer a lot easier to work and play with something that you've already seen executed once rather than um, just having all this angst over something that doesn't exist yet. So write the damn book. Also, relatedly to those authors who are published or are just becoming published, you don't want to run into the same problem that George is running to. So my recommendation as an agent, but also as a host on this podcast is as soon as you're done with this book and your agent sends it off or like sells it or something and you're busy like being a newly published author, <laughs> write your next book because you never know when HBO is going to come calling. Yeah. So that's the that's the other pub tip is when HBO decides to pick up your book, um, definitely keep writing so that they don't overtake you and ruin the plot twist you've been working on for 25 years because you're going to feel sad about that. Hold the door. <laughs> yeah. 